0: In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Madon and Chilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Maelan and Chilion died, so that the woman who was left without her husband, with her two sons and her husband, But Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So ends the reading of God's Word.
1: Let us pray. Father God, illuminate your word for us this morning so that we might see more of your remarkable quality, that you are a God of redemption, a God who sows in season and out of season in order to grow a great harvest for the life, everlasting life with Jesus to come. Amen. It's a time of social and religious chaos, of potential violent invasions, of uh, pestilence, of wars and rumors of wars. It's a time of apostate religion, of lawlessness in the streets, a nation on the brink of civil war, of scarcity and supply line shortfalls upon the nation. Oh, wait, maybe I should clarify. Speaking about the time period of the book of Ruth. Hopefully, nobody was fooled into thinking I was speaking of a different time. This was a book that was written in a time of social and religious chaos, of potential violent invasions, of wars and rumors of wars, a pestilence, of time, a time of apostate religion, of lawlessness of a nation on the brink of the civil war, and they will have a civil war at the end of the book of Judges, of scarcity and supply line shortfalls. And we begin looking at Ruth this morning, and over the course of the next few weeks, and this great book of the Bible begins in Bethlehem. begins in Bethlehem. It begins in the right place. But they will soon leave the right place. It begins in that uniquely sacred city 1,100 years before Christ comes to it. In an era of Jewish history between Joshua's death and the reign of King Saul, there was no king in Israel in those days and everyone did what was right in their eyes. A reoccurring theme of this era in the biblical narrative. And Ruth, in one sense, is a book... At home, alongside the Book of Judges, and the first man of Bethlehem we are introduced to in our text is a man named Eliamech. El- Eli Melek. Sorry, Melek is the word for king in Hebrew. Who has a wife Naomi and two sons Melon and Kilion? E- Eli Melek from Bethlehem. His name means "My God is King." What a good name. That's a good Israeli name. My God is King. He lives in the city of Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, of course, means the house of bread. Basically the city of bread. And yet he's experiencing famine in the city of bread. Famine in the sanctuary of God. And the question becomes, will Elimelech live up to his name? He won't he will actually suggest through his actions that the God of Bethlehem is anything but his king. The famine, the hardships, the suffering will cause him to leave the storehouse of God. He will leave the presence of God. He will refuse to suffer and struggle in the presence of God. Let's get into this idea of famine. Now, for the average American, we like casually say, I'm starving. You know, uh, on Friday, I went to Costco, and I picked up a few random things, and I come back, and my wife already knows, by the way, if she's married to me, that means she's subject to illustrations and being used in illustrations. And so Saturday morning comes along, and she goes, well, did you get eggs at Costco? No, I, I didn't get eggs at Costco. But I said, I mean, I got English muffins, we have English muffins, we still have that pancake mix that you don't need eggs. I mean, we have options for breakfast, but you would think that I have, was starving my family. I'm getting glared at. But I was starving my family because I forgot eggs. And we're kind of the people who say, you know, after we haven't had, you know, second breakfast, as they call it in Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, I'm a little hungry, I'm a little starving. When the Bible talks about famine, when the Bible talks about starving, it really means starving. And yet, when the Bible talks about famine, um, there's more to it as well. Let me see here. There's something that should be thought about. Actually, Moses and both The book of Leviticus towards the end in chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28 says that God will use famine at times in order to call people basically to repent in the land. And so if people were starving, if people were enduring famine in the promised land, the call was to repent. The call was to be renewed. And yet, this father refuses to repent in his suffering of famine. Instead, he decides to go to Moab. Moab's to the east of Israel. He's leaving God's sanctuary in order to find food in some other God's domain with his family. This is not like Adam and Eve who are kicked out and sent east the garden. This is not like the Babylonian exile, where the entire nation is basically moved east out of the land. This family is not forced to go east. They choose to do so voluntarily. This family left God's house of bread in Bethlehem, leaving the familiar for the unfamiliar leaving the known for the unknown, leaving the God of Israel for the pagan gods of the surrounding region. Chemosh was the pagan god of, of Moab. And they went to the just about the most shameful place they could go. In modern terms, the idea that we should get here is a little bit like this. If I came up here and announced, you know, it's been crazy in America, it's been a nice run here, the last two years have really gotten to us, though, and we're deciding to move to North Korea. You know, in North Korea, we feel like we have a better shot at making a way of life. What would you all say? Would well, you hit your head? Did you fall this morning? Why would you go to North Korea? You don't go to North Korea for a better life. You don't leave there, and yet, that's what's happening here. You see, Moab, we actually know of its origins. Its origins are from this ugly, incestuous relationship between a drunken lot and his daughters. You don't go to Moab in order to find peace. You don't go to Moab in order to find bread. You don't go to Moab in your suffering. For instance, it's not the idea of even leaving the land as poor. I mean, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all left the promised land, for a period of time in order to be, and they were called to in order to endure famine. But this family was not asked to go to Moab. They were not asked to go to North Korea. And so the man named My God is King, when things got, got hard, he fled God during the struggle of life. He settles in Moab with his family and remains comfortable in Moab. He likes it. He's comfortable in his decision. And quite some time has passed, and the author makes clear that enough time has passed that eventually as he dies, that his family by this point still feels comfortable in Moab. Rather than returning to Israel, they're comfortable in the sins of their father. We see in verse 4, the two sons of Elimelech, uh, they decide not only to remain in Moab, but to actually marry a Moabite. Something that the the spirit of the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 3 and 4 would have forbidden and, and said such a marriage would be unwise. So the sons are now following the sinful pattern of the father. And a decade passes between the marriage to these women. No children have been birthed though because God will not bless this union in Moab. And then both sons suddenly die. The book quickly clears out the men of the story. And to be candid, they were not much of men. They were supposed to be protectors of their households, but they kept their households in Moab. They were men who refused to struggle in suffering in the land that God had given them. They'd rather leave the sanctuary and comfort of God to go live with the pagan Moabites. And if we pause the book right there, every ancient individual, not just Israel, would have said, oh, well, those women's lives are over. They are over. I guess we know the moral of the story. You don't go to North Korea, you don't go to Moab in a chaotic time, because it certainly won't be any better there. And yet the story has just begun. And it starts to focus on the two great heroines of this text. Naomi being the first. Naomi's reality at this very moment, dare I say it, is worse than Job's. Naomi's situation in this moment is worse than Job's. You know, quite a lot of things can trigger depression in this life. You know, some of the biggest ones loss of a spouse. Loss of all your children, loss of all your financial security, chaotic moves, living in foreign places. I mean, every, every move of ours, honey, has been a, a walk in sunshine, right? Those are never stressful moments. She has all four of them. All four of them hit her. And her life seems to be over at this moment. And maybe here's where I tell you what Naomi's name means it means pleasant. Her name means pleasant. And yet, everything about her once pleasant life is now gone, it's utterly gone. It's utterly barren now. She's a widow. She's childless. She's grandchildless. All that she has left are her two pagan daughter-in-laws in in a foreign land with no financial future. By the end of verse 5, the book seems to be a cautionary tale about the foolishness of leaving God while suffering. And yet, little do we know, actually, the fate of humanity rests on God uniquely using these two women, two of the three remaining women, in order to write more lines in his grand story of redemption for the entire earth. And so did Naomi have reason to be depressed? Of course she had reason to be depressed. Yet, just because Naomi had left the land that God had given to her forefathers did not mean that God had forgotten about Naomi and has left her. That's the beauty, one of the beauties of the Christian message, isn't it? In this life, it's never too late. Thieves can be mocking Jesus upon a cross, and no sooner have their eyes open and come and worship Him. It's not too late. That's part of the Christian message. It's never too late to make peace with the God who came to Bethlehem. A woman and her family are in Moab, and all hope appears to be lost and buried. And our God looks at such individuals who appear to be only worthy for the trash heap of history, and He says, I can still make something incredible out of that. Our God, in one sense, is the ultimate recycler, He scours the pits of refuse, only fit for destruction and decay, and he saves them, remaking them anew. How does he do that? First, he gets a word of hope out to Naomi. We read in verses 6-7 through about Bethlehem. You know that house of bread you left, that place of Bethlehem since you ran off to the east? I've restocked it once more. The pantry is full. The storehouses are brimming. And so, Naomi, come back to me. Return to the place where both your God and bread is found. I think the most troubling thing I ever encounter in pastoral ministry is really a twofold reality people who either believe they've done something that God can never forgive them for, or secondly, individuals who lack the courage to return to God and genuinely seek His forgiveness. God has allowed suffering to befall Naomi, and yet those same circumstances also give Naomi an opportunity to return to the place of salvation, the sanctuary of Bethlehem, and she will seize upon it. And really, the time we find ourselves in of Advent is likewise a moment for us who are struggling in grief and in sorrow to return to Bethlehem, to go back to that place of sanctuary. You know, when it comes to the Bible, we wanted to say something in this life that it never says. It never says this, but we want to say this. We want the Bible to say, God can't ever stand to see us suffer. That God so orders the dominoes of our life that we never are to know such losses in life. And yet the reality is, the biblical narrative never backs down from the fact that God doesn't say that in Scripture. God doesn't have that opinion of our suffering. Rather, He's the God that says, Yes, you will suffer. Yes, you will have to take up your cross too. I mean, to be called Christians is to be called little Christ. How do you think we avoid following the walk of Christ, following the path of suffering? God doesn't say in this life, you will never be made to suffer. No, He actually admits... Your suffering is a part of my sovereign plan. That as we can see through Naomi here, and she's even talking about that God has designs. And God yet still declares, I'm going to bring something out of you and others through this suffering that you can't even imagine. And then our question is, do we have faith then to answer and to, to see it through? headset problem here. You know, while I've um, had to embrace glasses recently, uh, moving out here has actually both helped dramatically my eyesight and Bridget's eyesight. When we lived in uh, Vegas, I mean, that's one of the driest places on earth, and it did uh, uh, damage on our eyes. We constantly had eye problems. We even had, at one point... Uh, A doctor suggesting Bridget might go blind um, at one point. Um, And coming out here where there's more humidity has actually been great for our eyesight. Why do I bring this up? We want to live the Christian life always with dry eyes. And yet dry eyes and a dry faith never can see as clearly as eyes that are made moist at times through hard trials and suffering. We want the dry eye faith. We pray for the dry eye faith. And God says, no, 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 no. There is something in suffering that ultimately will cause you to see better. Have faith in me. Come back to me. Return to me. I would suspect I'm not the only one in the room who has come to understand that tears and suffering have a unique way of driving those who are the Lord's back to the place where God is found, back to the Bethlehems of our life. And so Naomi and her suffering is returning to the sanctuary of Bethlehem. And yet Naomi understands while Bethlehem is the only place she can go to for hope, it might be an awful fate for her daughter-in-law to follow her. But they are still women from Moab. from Moab. And so here in verse 8, Naomi offers her daughters-in-law a release in their obligations to her. It's almost a benediction of sorts. May the Lord deal kindly with you. That word, Rob, kind. We'll deal more with that next week, though, in chapter 2. And the benediction goes on. She's praying that the Lord might grant both of these women Rest. Basically, she's praying that they might receive what Cat Stevens would be at home singing about. Settle down, find a man. If you want, you can marry. I am old. Look at me. I am old and unhappy. Um, I don't think that's how Cat Stevens' version went. But both Orpah and Ruth refuse at first. They refuse, they say no. We're going to stay with you in verse 10, they say. But Naomi appeals to them again, basically saying, I have nothing to offer you. I have no sons. I'm going to a place in Bethlehem that will make you the outcast. I'm going to a place that for a Moabite would likely give you no future. I am too old to find a husband of my own in order to help provide for you. Please go back. Please go back. Please go back to Moab. And then Naomi adds that basically she believes herself to be cursed like Job in this moment and she loves these two daughters so much that she doesn't want them to be caught up in the crosshairs. She doesn't want them to get hit in the crossfire in one sense. I actually have a high respect for Naomi in this moment. Often sometimes people will, depict her as a complainer. I don't think she's complaining here. I think this is actually a depiction of sacrificial love for her daughters-in-law. They're, they are from Moab. How can pagans from Moab have a future in this world by going to Bethlehem? That seems absolutely impossible and utterly improbable. What can Bethlehem Offer to the godless, the god of Naomi. This god has already made clear, and Naomi's already told even her daughters in law he's allowed a series of events to unfold that are utterly awful. Chemosh from Moab must have seemed like a much better god to them. And it's now we find the greatest tragedy of this passage. That's why I called the sermon, The Tragedy of Orpah. Orpah counts the cost. She sees the likely potential for suffering and sacrifice that going on to Bethlehem might cause her and require from her, and she flinches, and she changes direction. As all three women are weeping together, as verse 14 tells us, Orpah betrays walking toward the God of Bethlehem. She betrays the God of Bethlehem with a kiss. With a kiss. Kissing her mother-in-law and turning back to Moab. Can I startle you for a moment? By using a biblical word that we often hate to hear. And as I sat on this verse this week and just thought on it, I thought about how many people will find themselves in hell on that great day of judgment that is to come because they refused to suffer and struggle in order to find security in the God of Bethlehem, preferring rather to return to their own personal Moab's. How many throughout the world will come out, for instance, just to the Christmas Eve service, throughout the globe, and yet their individual priorities for the remainder of the year will make clear they worship the gods of this world, rather than suffer to endure the race that the God of Bethlehem has called us to run. They'll return to Moab shortly after. They're reminded that there is a better God in Bethlehem. Who came to Bethlehem? Again, we want a Bible that says God can't stand us ever to suffer, and that's not what this book of Scripture is saying. This book of Scripture is saying, Press on to the God of Bethlehem in the midst of suffering, invest more richly in Him. This thought is really the principle of the Apostle Paul's later writings in the New Testament in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 5, where he states, Therefore, Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through His Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God uses our suffering so that we don't go through this world with dry eyes that cannot see as clearly. The book at the onset is telling us, suffer wisely. The husband did not suffer wisely in Bethlehem. He took his family to godless Moab, and both he and his sons lost their lives in his recklessness. Naomi now suffers the aftershocks, but she wants to return to the hope of Bethlehem to that great city of grain, that great city of where living bread is found, which enough, has more than enough grain to feed her. But she does not want to force her daughter-in-laws to walk that same road. And Orpah, the tragedy of the, the first opening chapter, leaves while Ruth refuses to go. And Naomi pleads with her remaining daughter-in-law Ruth to follow Orpah, Because Naomi still feels like she's in the crosshairs of life. She doesn't want Ruth to be hurt. And Ruth says one of the most beautiful statements in all of sacred scripture. In verses 16 and 17. She clings to her mother-in-law for dear life. And Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you. Or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge... I will lodge, your people shall be my people, and your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried, may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you, what a beautiful vow that is. God is giving us a glimpse a little bit of the tragedy of what Orpa has lost and Ruth has seen in staying. And it's now a good time to share the meaning of Ruth's name. Ruth's name is connected to the idea of refreshment or being a good friend. Ruth, the Moabite outsider, has just pledged fidelity to a God whom would have appeared on the outside to not be all that impressive. I mean, look what she did to the family she married in. He did to the family she married into, and yet it matter, matters not for Ruth. Ruth's, Ruth's depression evaporates by looking outward and mobilizing herself to help others, namely Naomi. We don't often think of solving depression in such ways by looking outward and serving others. Ruth's Bruce's re, Bruce's response to Naomi is counterintuitive to what we normally want to do when depressed. We want to shut ourselves in. We want to close up shop. We want to go back to the things we enjoy in Moab. But Ruth finds a different path. We often want God to cure difficult things to heal us in ways that makes our life easier. And yet sometimes the faith God wants to grow within us and mature in us best sprouts in the reality of not being healed. In the manure of our own personal unanswered prayers, God actually let something new grow that would have never existed without His allowing certain things to decay before our eyes. What needed to happen to bring Naomi back to the God of Bethlehem also needed to happen to bring Ruth into God's glorious story of redemption and what it was with suffering. And God will graciously use their suffering in order that these two women become a part of nothing less than changing the very course of history. And so, in the final few verses of chapter one, Naomi sees the determination and covenant commitment of Ruth. And Naomi will resist Ruth no more. And soon after, they find themselves staggering into town, staggering into Bethlehem, almost certainly exhausted from a long journey. Naomi's been gone for more than ten years. I mean, think, they would have been out in the wilderness. And, it, and the text has hints of this. The local gossip group, you know, Psst, can, you, can you believe how much she's aged? Oh, she brought a Moabite with her. What's wrong with her? Serves her right. That's what happens when you go to North Korea. I mean, Moab. I I don't even know if that's Naomi. You think that's Naomi? And even in the passage, somebody goes up and says, are you Naomi? They would have both looked like they're starving on the brink of death. Is that really you, Naomi? To which Naomi states in verse 20, don't call me Naomi anymore. Remember, her name means pleasant. Basically stating, nothing pleasant is in my life anymore. Naomi states, instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. I have left here a pleasant young woman, and now I've come back more than a decade later. I'm a battle beaten widow of a woman with no future. And then she states, for good measure, the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has brought calamity upon me. And I could just imagine the gossips muttering just out of earshot. We told them so. We told them. (laughs) Going to Moab was an awful idea. They deserved it. It Serves them right. But that's not the end of the story. That's not even the end of the chapter. The chapter actually ends with a ray of hope. Because the God of Bethlehem is a God of hope. Well the outcasts have now arrived in the city of Bethlehem, a young Moabite girl and embittered woman. They made it to Bethlehem. They have arrived just as the first harvest was being collected. And so while these two widows descending upon Bethlehem would have seemed utterly worthless, arriving to a greeting ripe with mockery and little grace, these women of Bethlehem walking a road of suffering, little do they know, were only mirroring the Savior's steps who would be born there 1,100 years later. And in part, he would come about to being because of their being there in that little town of Bethlehem. He too would find himself arriving in Bethlehem 1,100 years later with little fanfare, with rumors and gossip. She, she's not even married yet. She's pregnant? And the Savior would be born in a place only fit for animals. A fitting start for His life, seeing the end of it would have Him becoming for us the innocent Lamb who was slaughtered upon a cross for our sins and for our salvation. While going to the God of Bethlehem does not mean we will never be made to suffer, it does mean, if the Holy Spirit has given us hearts that can hear, that in that place of Bethlehem we can hear a Savior who cries out to us, I will never leave or forsake you. I will never stop following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. When you suffer, remember, I have suffered for you. Your people shall be my people because I am your God. And as your God, I absolutely love you. When I died... On Calvary and sacrificial love for you, so did your sins. They are now gone and buried. And now not even death can part us. This is the good news of our God who was once found in Bethlehem. When we return to Him from those moments where we have ventured into the Moabs of our own life. He welcomes us with a love that not even death can separate us from. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank You that even though we try to wander, we try to abandon You, we try to leave You, we try to forsake You, You are the greater Ruth who clings to us and will not let us go. We thank You for that perfect love. We thank You for the gift of the God of Bethlehem, who came for us in order to be the fullness of our salvation. Amen.